as the children are making their way out, I would just like to ask you a question. When a person puts his or her faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, is there a change that takes place in that person's life? Is it a visible change? Is it an outwardly recognizable change? So things have to be different after a person comes to Christ. That is really at the heart of what Pastor Steve read earlier. If you were listening carefully as we were reading through that passage together, that is a very, very difficult passage to deal with from a believer's point of view because there is the implication that once... and It's not an implication. There is a direct statement that once a person is regenerated and they come to know Christ as Savior, they no longer sin. Now, in our reading of that, we have a real difficult time because we realize that even after we've trusted Christ, there is still the propensity to sin within us. We have our old nature. We still have two external enemies, Satan himself and the world system that he developed to distract us from the things of the Lord. And so on occasion, we do commit sins. Does that mean that now we no longer have eternal life? You know the answer to that. But I want to be sure that you're all clear about this because just reading that passage without understanding the implications of the tenses that are used, it can lead us into a a wrong conclusion. When John wrote about we no longer sin once we know Christ, he wrote that in the present tense. And there's a very good reason for that. The reason is that sin is no longer the characteristic lifestyle that we live. It's not speaking about committing individual acts of sin because just before that, John made it clear that when we do commit individual acts of sin, we can restore our fellowship with the Lord by confessing that sin. And as we confess that sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us that sin and consequently to restore the fellowship that is broken by virtue of the sin that we commit. But if your life never changes and your lifestyle continues to manifest sinful attitudes, sinful behavior, decisions that are lawless, as John had declared, there is every reason to believe you've never been saved. There are changes that take place when a person accepts Christ. Last week, we left um, our study, and if perhaps you weren't with us last week, we have been taking a study through the book of Acts, and we got to the portion of Acts in which the Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. And so if you will, please, turn in your Bibles once again to the book of Acts, and we're going to look at this 16th chapter and continue on with that. To set a little bit of the background for you, Paul left for this second journey, taking with him a a colleague. And the colleague's name was Silas. Along the way, they brought into their ministry team a fellow by the name of Timothy. He is now traveling with them. Timothy is really learning about the, the issues related to the Christian faith. And he is going to eventually become a pastor to whom Paul will later write and give him instructions. Then a fourth individual joins their their group as they are on their way, and his name is Luke. He's a physician. It's going to be very important that a doctor go along 
with these men on their missionary journey. And, and today is going to point out a little bit of the reason why. As they are traveling, the Lord makes it clear that he does not want them going into the province of Asia, which would be present-day Turkey, not the continent of Asia as we understand it, but what would be present-day Turkey. He did not want them going into the realm of Bithynia, which would have been to the north of the place that they had gone on their first missionary journey. But instead, when they got to the town of Troas, which was on the uh, Aegean Sea, Paul saw a vision, and the vision was of a man from Macedonia saying, come over to us. Paul, believing that 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 vision was uh, given by the Lord, decided that their ministry would continue. And so this group of individuals traveled over to what would be the the northern regions of Greece. Um, and, And now, for all intents and purposes, the gospel is going to be making its way into Europe which really has some pretty important ramifications even for us today because the direction of the gospel continued that way through Europe, traveled west, and even to this day it's continuing as now the gospel is being brought back even into closed countries such as China and uh, Vietnam and places like that, Korea, and, and you're probably well aware of what's been happening in those countries. So... Here is this group of individuals, and they come to the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi is a city that will be familiar to us because we later read one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers there. But here in Acts chapter 16, we actually begin to find out how that church was established. So as we look at this portion of the word, begin uh, reading with me. Down here at verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony, and we were staying in that city for some days. Now, let me interject a thought here. You remember that part of the reason that the Apostle Paul and his group made their way into Philippi was because the Lord closed those other doors, and they were beginning to learn something that God, when he closes certain doors on us and prevents us from going in a direction that perhaps we want to go, he does it for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons is to protect us. And he literally puts a hedge around his people who follow his will, and he protects them. Another is to open greater doors of opportunity. We're now going to begin to see that door open up where the Lord had redirected them. And then... There's also the idea that there is an increasing confidence when we begin to follow the Lord without question. Not that within our own minds we don't raise the questions before him. He already knows that we have questions in our heart. But when we say, Lord, even though I don't fully understand this, I'm going to go your way because I am absolutely confident that what you are doing, the way you are leading, is exactly the right way. So there are wonderful reasons for which the Lord will redirect the paths of his children. Now, these guys are beginning to see that. And they get to the city of Philippi, which was a very important city. It was a city that had been developed by Philip, who was the father of Alexander the Great. It was another very important city in the realm of history because during the Roman civil wars that Uh, had occurred. There was a fellow by the name of Antony 
who battled Brutus, you all recognize his name, at this city of Philippi, Antony won and Brutus killed himself. This city thus became a Roman colony. And as a Roman colony, there were certain freedoms that they had. They didn't have to pay the same taxes to the city of Rome that other conquered areas had to pay. They were, they were free to exercise uh, a lot of their own legal and governmental uh, requirements uh, according to the will of the people who lived in the city. And they were a city that, for all intents and purposes, had a very strong tie with the city of Rome being protected as a Roman colony. And there's something else we learn about this. And you're going to see this as we read the next couple verses. There was a very small Jewish group of people living there. Now, the reason we know that is because wherever ten Jewish men lived, they had the freedom to establish a synagogue. It was a place where the people would come to worship the Lord. There is no synagogue in Philippi. It appears that this was not going to be one of the typical cities that Paul visited where he could go to the synagogue and begin explaining what Christ did to fulfill the the prophecies concerning his coming from the Old Testament. Now instead, they go to where the women have gathered to pray. They're outside the city, And so there's just not enough of the Jewish connection for Paul to begin disseminating the gospel. So he goes to where these ladies have gathered. And that's where we pick up reading now. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira and opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. We are going to be introduced to some very interesting individuals as we go through the remainder of this chapter. Lydia being the first, the next will be a servant girl, who is um, possessed with a demonic spirit, then we will be introduced to the one that we, we often refer to as the Philippian jailer. He is the one who is the keeper of the jail in Philippi. And throughout the entirety of this process, we follow the course of Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke being a little bit on the outside of this. The reason I'm pointing out those individuals to you is so that we begin to watch very specifically for those things we talked about just five minutes ago. When a person is truly born again, things change. If there are visible evidences of being regenerated, these people begin to show us what they are. And the very first one to come into view is this lady, Lydia. She is a person who sells purple. And the idea being that that there was a dye, a purple dye, permanent in nature, that was very, very expensive. It was used by uh, the, the, uh, the leaders of the day. It, it would be a princely type of a garment that would be dyed in the purple. And as a result of that, Lydia was pretty well to do. 
She undoubtedly had made a fair living, in fact, a very good living, because her house is going to come into the picture very clearly as this story continues. So we we have Lydia coming to listen to the message that the Apostle Paul gives. And as we go on, we read this. It says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God the Lord, opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. There are four things that emerge in, in Lydia's life that begin to show us what a true Christian manifests through his or her life as a result of their being born again. The first is obedience. She understood that when a person trusted Christ as Savior, the very first act of obedience should be following the Lord in believer's baptism to declare that identification publicly with Christ as the Savior. We don't see that happen a lot today. There are some churches that practice this. When a person professes faith in Christ, they immediately take them to the baptistry and have them baptized. For one reason or another, that hasn't become our practice, and it, and it wasn't the practice of many other churches that probably you are familiar with. And one of the things that I find as a pastor is often somewhere down the line, people will come to me and say, well, pastor, you know, I accepted Christ as my Savior last year, but I've never been baptized, and I'd really like to do that. Can I tell you who's to blame for this? Pastors, we... We, we don't say strongly enough that when a person is truly saved, they want people to know it. And they are willing to step out and to declare that faith through the waters of baptism. And baptism is only biblically done one way, and that is by immersion. It's not done to babies, and you know what? There are people who run to this passage and say, well... Babies undoubtedly were baptized because, look, it talks about Lydia and her whole household being baptized. Undoubtedly, she had little ones in her house. Oh, yeah? You know, I don't want to say that in a cocky fashion, but... Oh, yeah? (laughs) We're not even sure she was married. A wealthy woman such as Lydia had a household of individuals who were her servants. And the best we can say is there were people within her household along with Lydia who had accepted Christ as Savior. And they step out and they declare their personal faith and trust in Christ as Savior through the waters of baptism. And I would say to those of you who are here today who have accepted Christ and you have never been baptized, you really need to do that. It is a step of obedience. It is what the Lord has told us. We are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We are to baptize in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We are to bring people into following the Savior as disciples and to teach them to obey all that He has commanded, which includes baptism. We need to change the mindset today. We don't like to invade people's lives with the truths of what God's Word has to say. Baptism was right. 
and it was obedient. There was another element of this, and that is that she longed for fellowship with these men. When she accepted Christ and she found that her her life was now changing, she realized that these guys are individuals who can share the word of God with her, but they can also show through their lives what it is to live like a believer, what it is to live like someone who genuinely believes that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. They have trusted Him as Savior. So let's start fellowshipping together. And you know that that's one of the beautiful things about a gathering like this? The downside is sometimes we just kind of walk in at the last minute and we zip out at the very end of the service and then the rest of the time we're not really interacting with one another. I encourage you, get here a little early. We'll have to change our name. We won't be able to be a Baptist church anymore. People start getting here early. Joke. Now I've lost my train of thought. (laughs) Just fellowship. Spend time together apart from the services. Get together and like the Bible speaks about men sharpening other men by the virtue of their being together and spending time with each other. That's part of the benefit of the men's retreat. Men sharpening each other as iron sharpens iron. And it's part of what Lydia wanted in her life. There was a third element in hers, her life that emerges, and it was her hospitality. She said, I want you to come and stay in my home. I want you to be here and not only fellowship with us, but I want you to make this the place of lodging for your life. Now, one of the things that I think is really missing in a lot of Christian circles today is the interaction of believers in a social context. And and I've watched this happen over the years, and some of you who might be older, you've probably seen this develop as well. It used to be that it was the regular practice of individuals to, to invite folks to their home and enjoy fellowship together. For some reason, that seems to have gone... Uh, away and now it's like one person will only have one or two other people ever come to their home and we don't open it up. That's a good thing to have fellowship that way and to have hospitality that way, but that's not really what's in the picture here. The word for hospitality really means the entertainment of strangers. And what Lydia was doing was she was making the ministry of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke a much more effective and easier ministry by allowing them to come into her home and live there so that they could continue their ministry in the city of Philippi. That's where we, as a church family, have the privilege of allowing people who come to minister to us, oftentimes our missions family. Sometimes it's the the children from the Hope Children's Home or it may be some other group that comes. And the Lord says, you know what you could do? Just show that you're not like the rest of the world. Open your house up for the people who are going to carry out ministry. And so she showed us the pattern of hospitality. And then she showed us the hunger for the word. Part of the reason for her wanting Paul to be there is she didn't have a Bible. There was no New Testament. In fact, it would be very unlikely that she or the others with whom she had gathered to pray had any kind of scripture within their own hands. Instead, they had to rely upon the verbal testimony of individuals concerning what the word of God had to say. Here she is now 
with an apostle set apart by God who has seen Christ in his risen form and studied under him personally, who has learned the word of God, who is going to be used in a mighty way to communicate that word through the written page, and now she has him in her own home. Would it not be cool to have an apostle live in your own home? Would that not be neat? And you could sit down and you could ask all kinds of questions. What questions would you want to ask? What things would you want to know more about? Well, I imagine there are some things you'd probably like to know more about heaven, wouldn't you? What that's going to be like when we get there. That's one of the things. I, I would want to know a little bit more about why the Lord saw to it that the gospel went in one direction but not in the other. It would be very interesting to find out what his purpose was for that and a variety of other questions. I'm not sure that Paul could give the answers to all of those at this point. But later he would write and he would tell what the Lord intended for people to know through the written word. So we have this lady, Lydia, and she begins to show us these elements that are so important. She talks to us about the obedience, about that desire, longing for fellowship, about the hospitality, about the hunger for the word. And as I look at that, I realize those are all traits of a person who's been born again. That's what should happen in people's lives. Let's look at somebody else. Another individual comes to the forefront, and this is one you would not expect. Here in verse 16, Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Was that truth or was that a lie? That was the truth. These are servants of the Most High God. They are declaring the way of salvation. Wouldn't that be a great thing? Hmm. You know that questions like that are always traps. So don't, don't answer them. We're, we're going to read on and we're going to find out what it's really like. Verse 18, And this she did for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit. Now what was the problem here? Was it that um, a woman was speaking out publicly? No. The problem was this. Here is a woman declaring the truth who does not possess the truth herself. And her mouth will proclaim one thing, but her life will demonstrate something completely different. And so the inconsistency of the testimony with the lifestyle, the Bible says, greatly annoyed Paul. Now, you and I know a little bit about Paul's personality. And do you think that he just gently approached this situation? I doubt it. We don't have the the record of exactly how he responded. But I would suspect that there was fire in his eyes and there was emotion in his voice and he turned around and the Bible tells us what he did. He says, To the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. 
And he came out that very hour. Let us be careful at this point. There are those who would teach that any believer in Jesus Christ has the power to rebuke a demonic spirit and to have victory over that spirit by virtue of their own rebuke. That is not what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches elsewhere that as believers, we are totally dependent upon the Lord and his power to deal with any kind of an evil spirit that comes our way. And we ought not try to draw into our own realm of experience what we believe is the strength to cast out demons. I don't think you and I can command an evil spirit today. I think we can beseech the Lord to cast out evil spirits. But Paul, as an apostle, had the capability to specifically address this evil spirit, and the same hour it left her. Here is the question we're left with. At this point, does the servant girl actually know Christ as her Savior? Did this freedom from this evil spirit cause her to have the the openness of understanding to receive Christ and to trust Him. And we're not given the answer of that. Maybe she did trust Christ. Maybe at this point she was truly a believer. But even if she wasn't, there are certain things that emerge that are very important for those who truly do know Christ as their Savior. The first is they're delivered from bondage. This woman did not have control over her own spirit because there was an evil spirit dwelling within her who gave her the capability to, in some regards, tell the future. Now, you know what? You can spend a lot of time talking about these things. So let me just mention this real quickly. Demonic powers, Satan himself, are not omniscient. They do not have the capability to tell what the future holds. But I can tell you what capability they do have. They do have the capability to evaluate and examine things that are going on in many, many different locations. And it would be like you and I being investors who examine the possibilities of a company succeeding in the product that they manufacture because of a need that we see over here. We see what's being, or we hear what's being said in the board meetings. We know the direction that things are going, and we could say, buy this stock because this company is moving this way and they are going to do a great job with this and then they buy and you buy the stock and the company comes and then they they do very well and you become rich and the fortune teller just told you what the future holds no you learned by input by information by understanding and that's what demons have Sometimes they're right, and sometimes they're wrong. And the Bible says that anything or any person that tries to speak of future events and does not hit them 100% is a false prophet, a false teacher, a false communicator. Here is this woman. She's been nailing it for some people, but probably wrong sometimes, and as a result of that, making all kinds of money. Now, not for herself, for her handlers. Now, she has been set free from that demonic spirit, and her life goes a whole different way, and the reason we know that is because of what we go on to read beyond this. Notice what it says. It says, 
But when her masters, in verse 19, saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What had happened? These men lost the means of income because this woman no longer is possessed by this demonic spirit. She cannot tell what's going to happen in the future any longer, even if it is only 50% of the time or 60% of the time. It's gone. Her life has now changed. She is moving a whole new direction. You know what happens to believers when they're set free from the bondage of sin? They move a whole new direction. You don't go the same way anymore. You don't continue doing the things that you used to do. You're set free to live in newness of life and to experience a life that is pleasing and honoring and glorifying to the Creator. What does Paul and Silas get out of this? They get beaten. The magistrates of this Roman city take Paul and Silas and whack them with rods And Paul speaks about this again. He will talk about the three times that he had been beaten with rods, and this is one of them. And they would give 40 whacks, save one. And the reason is that the law would require um, the person administering the, uh, the punishment to himself be punished if he went over the 40, so they would stop at 39. And they would whack and whack and obviously their backs are torn open and they are ripped up and then the philippian jailer is given the charge to keep these guys in prison and to be sure they don't get away because you know what happens if prisoners escape the jailer dies and he dies So he's not going to let them escape. So he puts them in the stocks, which was designed to spread the legs at a distance and make it as uncomfortable as possible, but also as secure as possible for those who have been arrested. The Philippian jailer must have been a very, very small man. Because he slept on his watch. (laughs) See, it takes a little time, doesn't it? Somebody will say to you, who's the smallest man in the Bible? And and they'd say, who's who's the the shoe height? Bildad the shoe height. No, it's not him. It's the Philippian jailer. He slept on his watch. And see, I just wanted to be sure you're all with me because it's getting hot in here, isn't it? And I, I don't get this. We go from ice cold to blazing hot. And somehow, if we can get some air conditioning going, I'm watching people... Fa- Does anybody not want the air conditioning going? <laughs> oh, gee whiz. <laughs> um, 
those of you who are sitting close, it's Valentine's. Put your arm around that person and draw them close to yourself. All right. Except for you guys over here. The teenagers are all like, oh, yeah. Their, their first thing is, don't you know all the verses? They memorize all the verses in the Bible that say, greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> all right. Paul and Silas are now in prison. They are singing at midnight. These men have been beaten. They have been humiliated in front of the crowd. They have been placed in stocks to secure their presence. And they are suffering by virtue of the type of jailing they've received. And the Bible tells us in verse 25, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Do you see the peace that ruled their hearts? What would you and I be doing? What would an unsaved person be doing in a situation like this? They'd be complaining, they were treated unfairly, they would be yelling out, they would say, this is unjust, they would say, I won't answer any more questions till I get a lawyer, they would say all sorts of things that would be in opposition to being where they are. Not the believers who understand that a sovereign God has control of our lives, who allows us to go through difficult times and still puts a song within our hearts. And that song comes out through their lips. And the other men are listening. The other women in the prison are listening to them sing. And they're probably wondering, what in the world is it with these guys? And they're praying and they're lifting up their voices before God. And they're not complaining to him. They're expressing their confidence in who he is and in what he's doing. And then something incredible happens. Verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. What would you do? Run! Wouldn't you run? You would take off and get out of there just as fast as you could. Unless... You were absolutely convinced that you do not make a move until the Lord tells you it's time. You submit to His will. I'm free! Now I have a choice. Do I want to get out of here? Or do I wait until the Lord gives me direction? You and I will probably never be in a prison situation such as this. But we will face times in our lives when the door seems open, but we haven't heard the Lord say, go through. The believer, to manifest the truth of being regenerated in Christ, submits to his will and says, I am staying put until you give me direction. The direction was exactly the right thing. Because if they had run, the glory of what is about to follow would never have happened. Listen to what occurs. It says, The keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, he figured that's just the normal thing. 
drew his sword and was about to kill himself. He is now face to face with eternity. He is going to die, either by his own hand or under the torturous hand of the Roman authorities. He's going to die. He's going into eternity. He doesn't know what to do. He's going to kill himself so he doesn't get tortured. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. I can't remember many more compassionate things ever taking place in my life than this event. If this guy had put me in prison and tied me up in such a way to maximize my suffering and all of the difficulties that I would experience in a prison, I would say to myself, go ahead. Plunge that dagger. Kill yourself. Do yourself no harm. We're still here. The compassion of the Apostle Paul is demonstrated in such a way that he tells you and me, this is what we need to be like as followers of Christ. Loving our enemies. We, we can't even love each other. The simplest little things cause people to get angry with one another. Simple things that mean nothing in the light of eternity. And they will get angry with each other. <laughs> Haven't you seen that on people's faces? I have. I've seen it. They'll get angry. They'll get angry with me. That is not demonstration of a Christ-like spirit. Just so you know. Compassion is. I want the very best for you. Did you guys all hear about that baseball coach this week that gave his kidney for one of his players? And his thing was, this is what we need to do for one another. I don't know if this guy's a believer or not, but I want to tell you something. He has embraced the concept of compassion in a way that many believers have not. And he says, I've got an extra kidney. This kid needs it if he's going to live. I'm giving it to him. I tell you, the guy has become an example for everybody in the country. It's incredible. That's what Paul did. When the jailer hears Paul cry out that way, Look at his response. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Why? Because he had come face to face with eternity and had no answer for what was coming on the other side of the grave. And so he asks the most important question that anybody will ever ask in their lifetime. Sirs, what must I do to be Saved. What a great question. And the answer follows. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. May I tell you something at this point? There are those who believe that that's all you have to tell somebody for a person to get saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. If somebody told you that was it, what would you believe about Jesus? Well, I believe he's God. Oh, that's not good enough. I believe he lived on this earth. Oh, that's not good enough. 
I believe he lived a perfectly sinless life. That's not good enough. They must know what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to transfer all of your trust for your forgiveness, for your eternal life, to that which Christ accomplished at the cross of Calvary. When He died and took the penalty of our sins upon Himself, He paid the price and said, It is finished! And then He was buried. And He rose again. And to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ means, I forsake everything else. My trust in my heritage, my trust in my church, my trust in my works, my trust in my philanthropy, my trust in doing good things to people around me. I forsake all that to believe that Jesus Christ took the penalty I deserve and I trust Him. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for me, who was buried and who rose again from the dead. How do I know that it's not enough with just that? Because look what immediately follows. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. It didn't stop with one little catchphrase. It took understanding of what it was that Jesus Christ did. And what does the Philippian jailer do? He demonstrates an act of kindness. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Oh, there's that first step of obedience again. But look at the kindness that this man exercised. Their backs are raw. They are still oozing blood. And he takes them and he washes their backs. By the way, this is part of the reason now why it's going to be so important for Luke to be along. He knows how to take care of these things. So they don't infest and infect and fester. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. Hallelujah! Life has come to my home. I know Christ. And my family knows Christ. And my servants know Christ. And the people in my household know the Savior. And I'm filled with joy. (laughs) If I asked you to raise your hands, how many of you know Christ as your Savior? I don't doubt that it could come down something like this. I say, and I do that for this reason. Sometimes when the joy is in your heart, you need to tell your face. (laughs) And I'm not trying to say that at every minute we have to be smiling and, and bubbly, but there is a joy that comes along with being a follower of Christ. And, and that joy should be seen by other people. Listen, you've all put your Bibles and stuff away. Way too soon. Way too soon. Let's take a look. Let's go back over these again, okay? What are some of the evidences of being truly born again? Well, there is obedience. There is longing for fellowship. There is hospitality. 
there is hunger for the word. There is release and freedom from the dominion of Satan and his power. There is a new direction in life. There is peace. There is peace. Hang on. No, don't, don't anybody tell me. Uh, there is, there's peace and then there's, uh, uh, submission. There is compassion. There is kindness. And there is joy. These are the norms for followers of Christ, not the exception. This is the way people who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior live. I often hear about people getting saved. In other words, passing from death into life through faith in Christ. And I don't see anything change in their lives. I shouldn't be this way. I know this. But when I hear of somebody getting saved, my response is, time will tell. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. I have heard of so many professions and seen essentially no change. But what is wonderful is when a person truly accepts Christ as Savior, his whole life changes and we don't live the way the world lives anymore we are unique we are a peculiar people don't laugh too much about that we're some of us are peculiar in different ways but but we are a peculiar people we are different from the world May I ask you to be willing to examine yourself and look at that list and say, are these elements characteristic of my life? If they're not, there's a couple things that could be at fault. One, you may not really know Christ as your Savior, and you need to trust Him today. The second thing might be that you've grown cold to the things of the Lord and you've allowed the world to influence you to the point where there's very little difference in your lifestyle and those who don't know the Savior. And if that's the case, then there needs to be a revival that takes place in your heart. There needs to be a spiritual renewal. There is a book that was written by David Platt called Radical. This book is subtitled, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. It is one of the finest books I have ever read in my life. The name radical will turn off some people, but don't let that happen. This book, in my opinion, captures the very heart of the way believers should be living in a materialistic society in the 21st century, where technology and things and wealth have become the goal and the object of our lives. He will introduce five principles to your life that are going to make you very uncomfortable because we've embraced them by virtue of their being the American dream. I've never done this before. I'm asking everybody in our church to read this book. We have ordered 30 of them. We'll see if, if you care to. Men, there is no um, cliff notes. 
There's no movie. But it's not, it's a hard read in the sense that it will challenge your heart beyond what you can imagine, but it is not difficult to read. Those of you who would like to purchase it, they're normally 15 bucks. We can sell them for 10. We, that's what would cover it for us. If you want to download this, if you have a computer, you go on to your computer and download the e-reader from Amazon, e-reader for um, uh, PC, and then you can download this book for $5 and read it on your computer. I'm asking everybody in here to read it. We're going to make some extra copies for those of you who don't want to buy it, and we'll try to get those passed around. But if you'd like to buy it, It'll be available today. And I only get about a $5 commission on each one. No, no. We're going to close. Would you stand with me, please? I close with this. It may be that you're here today and you have realized, maybe for the first time, that you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. I would reiterate what the Apostle said. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But you need to understand what it is to believe. You believe that he died on the cross and took the punishment of your sins. You believe that he was buried and three days later rose from the dead and was seen by over 500 people to verify his resurrection. Repent. Turn away from the direction you're heading now and turn and embrace Christ as your Savior. And the Bible says you pass from death into life and life takes on a whole new direction. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the attentiveness of this congregation. Thank you for the truth of your word. And thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you.